welcome to the Layer 8 Podcast Season 3, culminating with the Layer 8 Conference on Saturday, October 8th in Providence, Rhode Island. This season, we'll have conversations with social engineers and OSINT investigators who will tell their stories. We hope you enjoy them. Welcome to another episode of the Layer 8 Podcast. We have a, an exciting guest for you today. We have John Turbush. Welcome, John. Hi, how are you doing? Thanks for having me on, Patrick. Thanks for being here. For the benefit of our listeners, could you tell them a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I uh, have a background doing research and working as a private investigator. And that was sort of how I got into doing OSINT, um, you know, trying to find open sources of information, um, working on cases, trying to find people and um, that sort of thing. So I would uh, you know, have attorneys that I did research for initially, uh, you know, they would need copies of court documents, or they would be trying to find um, uh, case information uh, that they could use to, you know, write their pleadings and, and make their cases. And I ended up eventually uh, helping out once in a while when they needed some investigative work done. They'd have PIs that they'd hire and, and I'd kind of coordinate and work with them sometimes. And then it sort of evolved into, you know, one of them in particular basically said, hey, you know, you're pretty good at this. You should just go ahead and get a license. We'll get you some work. So I was like, okay, that sounds like fun. You know, as a younger guy, you're like, cool, private investigator, right? That's, that's awesome. So I did that uh, and sort of took off from there. Um, worked as a PI full-time for 15 years-ish, something like that. Still have my licenses, but um, mostly the work I'm doing now is in the cybersecurity realm. When I was doing the PI stuff, it was, it was real physical security. I was doing a lot of surveillance work, um, locating people, tracking down witnesses and, and that sort of thing even doing accident reconstruction, you know, just some things like that. And this, this was in the day before the internet too. So if you wanted to document uh, like an intersection where an accident happened, you went out there and measured things. And it was a lot of work compared to what you have to do now. But, you know, doing some of those things, locating people, doing the, the court documentation, finding things online, that was all kind of open source stuff. I spent a lot of time in courthouses and libraries and things like that. And sometimes, you know, even now, you have some of these rural courts and, and governments, municipal governments that don't have all their data online. So if you want records, you actually have to go out there and get them. You know, it's not a lot of people, I think, kind of think, you know, OSINT, internet, online data. But even now, there's data out there that you really can't get uh, online. So I try to encourage people to think about that, that there might be some information not on the internet that might help their case once in a while. Let me get into the InfoSec part, I guess, uh, because I did pivot into that when I was, you know, there was, there was a point where I'd been doing the PI thing for a while and uh, I was thinking, do I really want to be sitting in a hot surveillance van when I'm like 65 years old, you know, not having a bathroom? Like, is that really what I want to do with the rest of my life? And it was fun. I mean, yes, it's not like the movies. Okay. But it's, it's definitely entertaining when you're following people around and you're getting the video that you need that, you know, is going to make the case for your client in court and that sort of thing. 
you know, there reaches a point where like, okay, you're really good at this. Are you going to really be that much better at it in 10 years? You know, there's kind of a, a growth limit in a way, other than building out the business and being, you know, a better businessman, which is not necessarily applicable just to doing PI work. So I decided it might be cool to kind of shift into the cybersecurity space, talk to some friends that were in IT, not necessarily in the security side, learned all I could, networked, went out and met people and ended up getting work because the investigative part of it is not that different, right? You're still trying to either protect an organization, find information out about an adversary or some entity that your clients are interested in. And that is, that kind of carries over, right? Um, how you're doing it in the specific arena you're in, whether that's the internet or uh, downtown of a city you're driving around, that sort of, it, it converts a little bit. Not in all ways. I definitely had to learn a lot, spend a lot of time uh, actually sitting in my surveillance van with my laptop and kind of a lab that I built out. So I was, you know, at down times, I could just uh, kind of learn some stuff and, and experiment and practice with computer uh, networking and that sort of thing. But uh, I did make that pivot. It's been really cool and I've learned a lot and it's, it's actually been fun to transition more into that InfoSec space. And of course, OSINT is a big part of um, both of those worlds, both private investigators, uh, as well as cybersecurity people do a lot of open source research. So on Twitter, you're known as the gumshoe. What is, yes. a, what is that name a reference to? Um, well, it's just sort of an old um, word for a private investigator, you know, rubber soled shoes, people that walked a lot. Uh, and as a private investigator, I definitely walked a lot. So that kind of made sense. It's kind of fun little handle. You know, when I was just doing the PI work, I wasn't, I wasn't on line as a person. Obviously I had sock puppets and other things to gather data from Facebook and, and everywhere else I could, just like many of you probably do. But I, I wasn't one to put my face out there. I didn't post things online. I wasn't personally uh, setting up accounts on social media because I, I worked it from the other side. So I had, I had no interest in putting my data out there. Um, and then when I got into the InfoSec side of things more, first, there's kind of a less of a personal security need there compared to being a private investigator where there are people that you've testified in cases against that are maybe pissed off at you and that sort of thing. Um, so there's a little more distance there. But I also just got into um, some teaching with SANS and other things where it made sense for me to get out there a little bit more, try to share some information, interact with people. Um, so that, that is why I now have a Twitter account um, with the gumshoe. When I first started learning about OSINT, I think uh, I had a hard time understanding and figuring out which career directions that there might be. And I think in my head, I thought really the main direction that an OSINT investigator would go into is a private investigator. Do you think that is a great direction for somebody interested in OSINT? And how would somebody become a private investigator today? Or what is the process of getting a PI's license in any kind of short detail? Well, let me tackle the first part of that. Uh, as far as the OSINT careers and where to go, 
I mean, there are so many different roles in OSINT. Uh, I was actually just looking at some of the, the recent podcasts that you've done, and there have been people like Stephen Nix and Griffin Glynn, who I know from sort of the investigative uh, OSINT side of things, as well as guys like Eric Crone, who I know from cybersecurity conferences. So there's a spread in the, the OSINT world just from looking at a couple of people that have been their podcast recently, but there's so many avenues into it, you know, government intelligence type work, uh, law enforcement, NGOs and geopolitics, journalism, all of these uh, are roles where you, you're doing a lot of OSINT uh, work sometimes. As far as the PI side of things, it really, really varies uh, where you are. In the US, every state has their own rules about private investigators. Um, you know, I'm in the DC area, so Maryland, DC, Virginia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, they all have entirely different rules. Some of them, um, you basically need to work for an investigative company to even get a license. Some of them, you can get a license on your own and then work for whatever companies you want. Some places like Colorado and uh, so forth are kind of notorious for having almost no rules. So you can just sort of become a, an investigator quite easily. Um, so it, it really depends comp completely on where you are, even in the United States and across the world. Uh, I can't speak much to what it takes to become a PI in Singapore or Australia or Germany, but just understand there are rules. You probably will have to do some sort of training. You'll probably have to submit to background checks and get fingerprints done and all that sort of thing. Um, but it's typically not, it's not rocket science, right? They just want you mostly to understand the rules and have some basic understanding of, of how you need to do the job that you're gonna do. And you're not running around out there doing stupid things, breaking the law. I saw that you're also involved with OSINT Curious, which saying involved is probably a great understatement because you're one of the founding members and advisory board members. What is OSINT Curious about and what do you do with them? Well, OSINT Curious is a project um, that was started by a group of folks, um, probably the, the key instigator, if you want to say that, uh, was Micah Hoffman. And Micah uh, and I and some others felt like at this time, there was a lot of information out there being shared on how to do OSINT. And, you know, using these techniques, you can find out X. And quite frankly, some of it was wrong or, or, or inaccurate to say the least. And we had the thought, let's create a space where we can share some really reliable information. We can share some how-tos and techniques um, and just be kind of a go-to resource for people to get that data on how do I learn how to do this? How do I find out X? I mean, even if you've been doing OSINT for 20, 30 years, whatever, like myself, I'm not trying to date myself here, but um, there's always areas that you're not an expert in. It's just such a broad field. So if you need to now learn how to do geolocation from imagery or something, and you haven't had to do that before, what are some ways that you can do that? How can you kind of figure out what you need to do? So we really wanted to share some of that. And that's, that's where it all came from. Um, 
and we're still doing live streams and blogs and stuff today. It's totally voluntary. We don't get paid or anything like that. It's just sort of a, a passion project. And we'd like to share information uh, that, that we think is good, accurate information. So folks that are trying to learn things or, or figure out how do I do this, they have somewhere to go. It's a great free resource for people. Just pulling up the front page of OSINT Curious, I see each of the, the members having a lot of their own tips, like Ritu's top five email address OSINT resources, Wondersmith Ray's top five maritime OSINT tips, a beginner's guide to the web. And that's just at the top. It's amazing the types of resources that OSINT Curious has. And one of my favorite resources that you have on there is the 10-minute tips. For people like me who don't have much of an attention span, can just yeah. jump in and learn something OSINT related in 10 minutes. Yeah, those I think are probably some of the most popular items that we have on the site. Because like you said, who has a lot of time, right? Um, I, I just need to get on with my work. I need to figure out how to do this and get back to it. So uh, we try to be as concise as possible. We're not trying to teach a master class and course on how to do OSINT in every situation, every way. But hey, I'm trying to do this uh, and find data on somebody on Instagram. How do I do it? Yeah, anytime that I get stuck doing OSINT and trying to figure out how to do something, I always refer back to OSINT Curious because there is probably going to be a blog post or a 10-minute tip or something on there. And I, I see that you also have live streams where you have uh, your own video podcast types of things with guests on there. And it's pretty amazing some of the, the people that you've had on there as well, including other private investigators to, to talk about some of those tips. Thanks. Yeah, we, we try to, um, you know, we try to get some good content there and as you mentioned, we have people that come from all areas, uh, like Ray Baker, you know, into the maritime stuff, and Ritu, who is the law enforcement and looking at different sensitive uh, extremist groups and things like that. So it's a pretty diverse bunch. So we can share a pretty broad scope of, you know, how do I do this? What's a tip to find out whatever? And like you said, that's all quick information that you're not trying to teach a master class in that. But I think that you're also involved with another place where you are teaching a master class. You teach uh, for SANS, and not only do you teach, but you're a course developer. Which course or courses are you working on with, with SANS? Um, well, I started out working with uh, SANS and Micah Hoffman, again, um, who I knew Beforehand, uh, as I mentioned, I had gotten into uh, the InfoSec space. So I started networking, going to local meetups and stuff. So that's where I had met Micah because we're both in the DC area. Um, and Micah, some years ago, who had been teaching for SANS, he'd been teaching uh, you know, technical classes like, like how to do assessments and uh, hacking, basically, uh, web infrastructure and things like that. He decided to develop his own course on OSINT and he had asked me for a little assistance. I mean, he wrote the course totally, but it's kind of like, Hey, I know you're a private investigator. You have some background here. Could you share some ideas on, on how I can make this a really good course? And I helped him out with that. He needed folks to teach it. 
ultimately once he had it completed and I ended up doing that. So that's this SEC 487, that's the basic OSINT course that SANS teaches. And then over the last couple of years, I teamed up with a couple of friends, um, Nico Dakins, Dutch OSINT guy, and David Mashburn. And we developed an advanced OSINT class, which went live late last year. Um, and SANS is, is teaching that now. Um, and that's sort of, it goes a little beyond some of the, I guess you might say, uh, basic OSINT stuff. We get a lot into automation. How can you um, use some basic code? We're not teaching you how to be a, a coder and go get a job, you know, writing software or something like that. But how can I write some scripts or use some basic automation tools to maybe monitor? Maybe I am interested in this group. Anytime something new kind of comes out on the internet, I want to know about it. And I don't want to just use a Google search engine type whatever. Um, so how could I automate something like that? Or how can I collect a bunch of email addresses for this organization or whatever? Little tips like that. Um, we talk about data analysis, the actual intelligence analysis and, and how you do that, because we think that's an area that people really focus on the collection a lot, right? Um, but they don't always think about the fact that it is intelligence work. You should be analyzing the data um, and not just blah, spitting out everything you found online to your client. There should be some analytical piece to your work. So we talk about that. We talk about uh, investigating extremist groups, developing sock puppets, uh, you know, dark web and cryptocurrency. We go into a lot of stuff on the new class and uh, it's a lot of fun, actually. How do you describe to people who want to take one of those classes as to when they're ready for one or the other? If some, does somebody have to know any kind of background in OSINT to take 487? And when is somebody ready to maybe skip over 487 and go straight to 587? There's definitely not a hard line there, right? The SANS has the syllabus for the courses online. So I usually just direct people to those and say, hey, do you feel very confident with, with the information taught on our um, basic 487 class? If you feel like you've covered those points, um, you're, you're probably ready for the advanced class, right? But we have details, pretty, pretty decent details on what the classes cover there. And it really does depend on you and your experience. If you've been doing OSINT for you know, 10 years, probably the advanced class is okay because I know a lot of guys that, that are very experienced, but they don't really do any automation. It's all manual work. For example, this course would really help them become more efficient. And the basic class is, is very well-rounded. So even if you have been doing OSINT for a bit, the basic course, SEC 487, has a lot of information I guarantee you that you'll probably be learning stuff on that course. Um, and of course, someone that's new to the space, it's great for. I think I read that you also got a start in the field with incident response. Has that also helped you to uh, build your foundation in being able to, to understand OSINT? And was there anything with that that you were able to, to dig through and, and help with? Yes and no. It, it, 
again, I shifted from the kind of physical security world of private investigation into information security. Um, and like I said, I, I learned computer networking and, you know, some malware analysis and, and looking at malware files and things like that. Um, and I did a lot of networking. I went to all these meetups and stuff and, and made friends and kind of got an idea of, you know, when I first got into it, I was a PI and I had people asking me all the time, like, hey, do you do digital forensics? Can you look at these files? Can you take this phone and get everything off of it? So my kind of first thought was, well, I can kind of get into that. I can get into forensics. And then once I sort of started studying, I realized that's pretty advanced stuff. That's probably not where I'm going to start out uh, in information security. Um, I mean, it's possible. <clears throat> I could have done it, but it just seemed like it made more sense to go into a more junior, mid medium kind of a role. So I ended up working uh, with a company called Symantec and their security operations center. And they did monitoring of tons and hundreds of clients' networks. And it was a fantastic introduction into information security uh, because you are seeing all this huge wide variety of clients and what they do, um, you know, like healthcare and banks and government and all, you know, everyone doing something different, different kinds of networks, different kinds of data, uh, different kinds of systems. So it really helped me become well-rounded in that space. And also, you know, the investigative part of it, uh, I found very interesting, as you might expect, because of my background. So um, tracking malicious uh, actors and campaigns and creating detections so that we could you know, identify if there was uh, malware communicating with its command and control servers. Those were all things that really interested me because they were investigative in nature and I was, that was kind of my jam, right? So I did start out there working you could call it incident response. Certainly it involved uh, working with incident response teams uh, of clients. And it definitely was an eye-opener. It was a great introduction to working in information security. And I was able to sort of pivot from that into the cyber threat intel or, or CTI kind of space, which was an, a natural fit for me as an investigator. So you work for Recorded Future today. What do you do with them? Yeah, I work at Recorded Future, have done for a few years now. Recorded Future is basically a security intelligence, they call it threat intelligence uh, company. Um, so they've basically been collecting data off of the internet um, from you know, dark web forums to Twitter to wherever else, you know, just random websites and blogs. Um, and they've been doing this for like 15 years. So this tremendous horde of data um, and they've used, you know, we have data science team. So we have structured the data so you can easily find things and pivot around. But my role is primarily on the technical side. My team focuses on malware analysis, um, discovering infrastructure like command and control servers um, that are being used to direct attacks. We create detections for these. We share information so that our clients can hunt on their networks for activity. Um, we track new techniques and tactics, um, TTPs as we call them, 
um, new vulnerabilities they're being exploited by attackers and we share all this data with our clients sometimes publicly we have a public blog so we we try to share with the community as well um, but my role primarily is in discovering new infrastructure that is being used for malicious purposes uh, and then trying to figure out how we can develop signatures and detections so we can find more of it as it, it changes because the bad guys are always updating their stuff and, and moving around. They know they're being tracked and that they don't want that to happen. They want to keep their operations going. So we try to get ahead of it and figure out what are they doing? How do they do it? And how can we sort of detect that um, if they shift to different IPs or domains or that sort of thing. So that's that's what I work on primarily now. It's, it's a lot of fun because there is a lot of investigative part of it, like finding new stuff there. And that's... Uh, that's been keeping me happy for a while. I also got my start uh, with incident response. And one company that I worked for, we were trying to figure out emerging threats against our clients. And I remember we actually looked into some of the recorded future tools. And I was given, I think, a, a like a one-week free trial to everything. And one of the things that we liked to do at my company was to see what kind of threats are coming what kind of threats are already happening in certain sectors that haven't hit our clients yet. And I remember just in that week, I was able to find two or three attacks that were in the sector of our clients that were potentially coming that would have cost our clients hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I remember bringing that information to, to my management and saying, this is how much money that this is going to bring into our company because we can save our clients, all of this, and all we have to do is purchase these tools from Recorded Future for far less than hundreds of thousands of dollars. And for some reason, they just said no. I was really amazed at the <laughs> type of information that you could get just through some search tools that Recorded Future made available. Yeah, there's some real power in having all this information, collecting, constantly collecting, as well as having this back. Uh, archive of data, being able to put that together, as well as, like you said, having information from all these different um, areas, you know, different industry verticals. So if you're, you know, in healthcare, and you're seeing attacks, you know, if, you, if you're just kind of sitting in your network looking for stuff, that's very reactive, right? You're, you're not doing anything but kind of responding and you're only seeing what is hitting your network but if down the road the hospital is is being attacked if you can understand and know how that's being done you can prepare yourself so that's that's a lot of what recorded future is about it's intelligence to guide people to um to protect themselves so that they are not threatened uh, and attacked and or at least when they are it's not successful that's that's our hope and that's the idea behind it all and i've been at some conferences i think where recorded future analysts were there talking about some of the things that they do talking about some of their research and i think there's also webinars that people can go to and get in get that type of information are you ever concerned or do you know if any of the analysts at Recorded Future are ever concerned about their own personal safety? Because a lot of times the information that is being shared by Recorded Future is about some really bad people. And they might, some of them seem to be 
actual dangerous people that can do harm to other people. And there are times when it seems like the information that is being shared by Recorded Future could potentially cost these bad people a lot of money if it gets out there and it gets stopped. So is that something that concerns you working for a company like Recorded Future? Well, coming from, you know, working as a private investigator where I could have people trying to run me off the road or, or physically threaten harm to me um, on the regular, not that that happened a lot, but it definitely was, was a threat and there were some incidents here and there. I'm not as concerned about it maybe as some people are. Um, most of what we do is very much in that digital realm. Um, we, we do certain things like we don't put people's names that worked on specific works on our public blogs um, for that reason, you know, for, for personal security reasons, because we do go after uh, some large, you know, governments, right? Nation states, We're, yep doing stuff on state-sponsored activity uh, with the, the, the sources and resources that those entities can bring to bear, obviously, um, as well as criminal or some advanced criminal organizations um, where, you know, someone could get swatted or, or whatever, right? So there is some concern, there's some attention paid to that. And there are definitely some analysts who do not want to put themselves out there, who do not want to do presentations at, at conferences, who, um, who just kind of keep to themselves. They do the work and it's great work, but they definitely have sort of a, I, I don't want my name associated with this uh, kind of thing. I'm willing to get out there again from my background. Uh, the risks are pretty minimal, so I'm not so worried about it. And um, Again, if someone wanted to show up at my door, they've worked hard to get there and I will handle that uh, as needed. Here's a question that I've asked some other investigators and I wanted to see what type of advice that you have. There's organizations out there like the NCPTF and Innocent Lives Foundation who do work to protect children. And I think lots of people are uh, sympathetic to that work and may want to help those organizations while not being officially affiliated and might just kind of dig in and start doing investigations into either children that have disappeared, children that have been harmed, or every so often something will pop up on the news or on Twitter saying that like this child is missing. Any random person could just start doing their own investigation. What is your advice on people who want to do that but there could potentially be a legal case here. And what are some of the things that somebody should think of where they could potentially harm a legal case with their investigations? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, as a private investigator, you have at least some understanding of the laws and uh, how you can maybe avoid some of those situations you don't want to be in. I think the best advice probably is to work with uh, some of these groups that you mentioned, like uh, NCPTF and, and all of these groups have people that have worked in law enforcement, they coordinate with law enforcement. I think if you work with them, you have, you're kind of under their umbrella there. If you're trying to go rogue out there and do some stuff, that's when you might get into some problems. And especially, and even if directly working maybe with law enforcement, if you are not law enforcement, um, 
I know in the United States and in, in training I'd received as a private investigator, there are certain rules that apply to the government that don't apply to you, for example. So they would caution investigators in trainings, be careful what you're doing working on government and criminal cases, because you can basically be deputized or legally argued that you've been deputized and are working on their behalf, at which point you need to follow their rules. You know, constitutional protections and so on apply far more to the government than to private individuals. So you really need to be aware of what you're doing if you're getting into that space, I would say. And the easiest, simplest way to do it is to do it with one of these nonprofit organizations that have kind of worked it out so you can stay within the ropes safety wise. Have you ever been asked to do this kind of thing? And if so, or even if not, what advice would you have where somebody hears that you do OSINT and they say, here's my spouse's computer. I think they're cheating on me. Can you prove it? Yes, I have. As a private investigator and one that had his own company, I can tell you all sorts of people will come at you, a lot of, a lot of weird folks, frankly. And then there are also those who just are with coming at you with requests like that, like, hey, I can take my wife's phone. Can you get me all the information off of it? And of course, my response would be no. <laughs> um, and there are some shady private investigators out there that would probably use something like that. And that kind of gives everybody a bad name. But if you are doing OSINT work, if you're working as a researcher, you're working as an investigator, man, try to stay within those lines because you can get in real trouble if you are doing stuff like uh, trying to follow requests like that. Um, and, and if there, there is, I, there is some protection, again, working with attorneys. So I would often say if, if somebody came to me and this happened a lot, like, okay, oh my God, I'm getting divorced. What do I do? I need to follow my, my wife around all the time and see what she's cheating on me with. And my first thing would be like, slow down, brother. Have you talked to an attorney? Do you have an attorney? because you can go spend a lot of money on PIs chasing someone around and doing all this work, but your attorney is gonna tell you what you actually need to handle this situation. Uh, and half that or more information that you spend all this money on is maybe worthless or useless ultimately, either because you had it gathered uh, illegally or there was something else going on that's actually gonna be prejudicial to your case. So. One of the things I would say is get some legal advice, right? If you are doing investigations, if you're like OSINT researcher guy and you don't have, for example, a PI license, understand what you would need a PI license for, right? Where you're located, if you were supposed to appear in court and provide evidence, you know, you might need a PI license, for example. So just understand the rules where you are. Um, understand some of the laws and if you you know if it's not that hard to get a PI license uh, hey maybe go get one and then you have some level of protection there. a little while ago you you referenced being driven off the side of the road or some other crazy things that have happened during investigations are you willing to share any kind of stories like that where investigations went a little sideways or got a little bit scary you know it's funny um I definitely had, you know, 
guys yelling at me is stuff because everybody, if you do this work long enough, you're going to get burned, right? If, if you're getting paid by a client to go follow a guy around for two weeks, um, you know, some people are oblivious. They just will never notice you. But some people are a little more aware. There's only so much you can do if you're trying to do your job. Um, so I, I always kind of had a feel or a knack for, you know, getting clear of those situations. Um, I definitely had people I work with and friends that would, you know, end up getting cornered on a street somewhere. I always just had a really good feel for not doing that. Um, you know, I could always leave, come back another day in a different car or whatever, and they'd never notice me. That, that, was, that was something I just had a knack for. Um, but I definitely had people yell at me, chasing me down the road, things like that. Nothing, nothing super exciting. Um, never really had a gun pulled on me or anything like that, you know, so it's, it's not like the movies, but there definitely are incidents that I was aware of, um, people getting cornered on in different areas. You, you would have guys that would, some, some investigators are just so focused, they're not situationally aware enough, right? So they would find themselves kind of, you know, doing that, that target engagement where they're just focused on the person. They don't notice, you know, their friends coming up behind them and that sort of thing. Um, you know, usually not really physically threatening. You can always call the police and, and get some help. Sometimes serving papers. I used to do a lot of that service of process. Things get a little sketchy, but again, I never had too much of a problem. Usually it was a more of a, a a tactical, how do I get this into this person's hands? Um, not so much worried about the threat to yourself, but okay, they never leave their house. How do I, how do I get this served on them? And there were some kind of fun times where you, like I worked this one case where it was president of uh, a international bank, actually. And it was a, a domestic situation. There was a divorce occurring and they did not want the case to happen in the United States. Uh, they wanted it to happen in wherever their home country was. So this person lived in a very large house and were driven by a chauffeur. And, and of course, if we knocked on the door, they would never answer the door and all that. Um, but we ended up being able to, you know, get them served at their workplace. Myself and a team of two other guys basically waited for his car to show up. We knew where he'd either be dropped off in front or at the garage we sort of staked out the outside of the entire bank uh, building, which is a very large building in the middle of downtown DC. Um, sure enough, guy showed up. My buddy, who was just a very brave dude, he just stood on the sidewalk right in front of the, the parking garage ramp. So the chauffeur couldn't get down in there. Well, I ran over and, you know, tried to get him to open the window or something, banging on the window like, hey, I have papers for you, because he knew. He absolutely knew he was, there were people trying to serve him. Ended up, I was able to just stuff the papers into the handle of the car door. Uh, meanwhile, security guards from the bank had tackled my buddy and drove him out of the way, and they peeled off down into the garage. Um, but we were able to make that uh, service of process stick, which was pretty cool. Um, so, you know, some fun things like that. Uh, which maybe involved some risk, like my, you know, literally my friend was tackled on the sidewalk, um, but we were able to get the job done. Mission accomplished. Yeah. 
One of the, the videos, types of videos that I like to watch on YouTube is sometimes they get an expert in a field to analyze movies that have somebody in their field in that movie. Do you know of one or two movies that either represent private investigators really well, or what have you seen in movies that you watch that have a private investigator and you're like, that's not even close. There's, we don't do anything like that. Well, <laughs> probably like the people you're referring to, most of them are quite inaccurate, right? They make things seem way more exciting uh, or whatever. So, you know, things that show surveillance don't always show how tedious and boring it can really be. Some of them do. Um, certainly some of the older stuff, sometimes you find like Elmer Leonard uh, books, sometimes uh, are, they definitely have some accuracy there uh, as far as, you know, pounding the pavement, going and talking to people, you know, how, how much legwork actually goes into an investigation. So some shows are absolutely ridiculous, right? I'm not going to like point them out. They're probably yeah. obvious to everyone listening how ridiculous they are. Um, but of course, having my experience, I, I can you see shows where, you know, someone is, you know, doing surveillance and they're following a car and they're like literally right behind the car the whole time, like, you know, for miles and miles. And somehow that person never notices that they're behind them. Now, I have worked some cases, like I said, where there's just completely oblivious people, but that's pretty unlikely that doing a surveillance well, you definitely don't want to be just riding right on their bumper, uh, you know, most people are going to notice something like that. Um, but there are some, some shows sometimes that show a little bit of the, you know, this takes a little bit of work, some social engineering, like, you know, like the Rockford files or something like that. Right. The guy would be printing out business cards in the back of his, uh, his firebird or something like that. He drove, I forget, but yeah, there's, there's, there's all these elements that aren't necessarily always covered or they're shown in some ridiculous way, but in some way they kind of refer back to how things are done. Like, like I said, about Rockford files and printing business cards. There's so much social engineering that goes into working as like a private investigator where you kind of have to talk your way into places or you have to figure out ways to get information. So who can I represent myself as? So this person will want to talk to me and share this information. If I just come up and say, hey, I'm Joe Private Investigator. Uh, tell me everything you know. The response is going to be, no, I don't want to talk to you. So how do I get this? Um, and, you know, I did some undercover type cases, usually into like employee fraud or things like that, where the employer is trying to figure out what his employees were doing um and things like that where you, you just kind of have to create a persona and go with that and this kind of carries over into what a lot of investigators do as far as creating sock puppets and and trying to get information in the digital world you know i did this in the physical world initially but also do that as well um, so there, there's a lot of that social engineering that goes on as a private investigator, as well as for folks that, you know, that might do that. Not everyone in OSINT engages with their targets or with, with those that might have their info, but I know quite a few of us do. What advice do you have for somebody that is just starting out in the OSINT industry and wants to maybe get to where you are today? I think probably one of the key things would be 
to, to network, to get to know other people, either digitally, you know, on, on Twitter, like follow, you know, people that know what they're talking about. Um, you know, guys like Michael Hoffman, I was curious, Michael Basil, you know, those sort of folks that have reliable information and um, keep you updated uh, on things as they change and things change a lot. You know, what worked for you to collect something on Facebook last week might not work for you today. Get to know some people that you can kind of keep up to date on um, and that you can, you know, maybe find mentors to and give you advice about how do I get into this field or whatever. Um, learn all you can, you know, if there are actual physical local meetups of investigators or OSINT people or whatever, um, hey, go to those, meet some, some people, learn some things. What else? I would say doing hands-on stuff. Like you mentioned um, in CPTF, um, there are some CTFs where you can help, uh, you know, find missing people and things like that. Um, do these CTFs and get hands-on, get some experience and practice if you haven't really worked and done OSINT type things before. Um, kind of figure out what it's all about. It might even be that, hey, this really isn't for me. I'm not sure I like doing this. Um, that's good to know, right? But more likely you'll find it interesting and engaging and you'll figure out ways to do things that could become marketable skills for you. That I think would be the, the pro tips there for me. Uh, learn all you can, meet people, um, engage with others and, you know, just sort of become familiar with the tools, uh, become familiar with investigative technique, do CTFs and that sort of stuff. Do you have any upcoming conference presentations, webinars, or SANS classes coming up where somebody can see you? We do have the SANS classes running for both the, uh, the SEC 487 basic course and our advanced course. Uh, off the top of my head, I can't tell you what the next one is, but the SANS website can help you out there. We are doing a SANS live stream. We do do monthly live streams with SANS on OSINT topics, um, and you're welcome to tune into those. OSINT Curious uh, regularly does live streams as well, and we have you know our blogs and 10-minute tips and so forth up on our website, which is osintcurio.us. Those are some of the key things. I don't have a, I'm working on a presentation right now, um, but I, um, it's in the initial stages and I don't have a, a schedule of when or where I'm going to be presenting that yet. John Turbush, The Gumshoe, thank you so much for joining us on the Layer 8 podcast today. Yeah, honored to be on. Thank you for having me. Uh, it was great talking to you. 